Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're speaking with Brian Garner about rare grammar books. Brian is a grammarian, a person who studies and writes about grammar, and in this case, collects books about grammar. 100 books in Brian's collection are on display at the Grolia Club in New York. The exhibition is called Taming the Tongue in the Heyday of English Grammar, 1711 to 1851. It runs until May the 15th. The Grolia Club is open to visitors, hurrah, but you need an appointment to see an exhibition. Now, Brian's collection includes 1,900 grammars, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and 4,000 dictionaries, so he's not a man who is short of words. Welcome, Brian. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, my first question is, what is a grammar? Well, it, it's it's interesting. Only grammarians tend to refer to a grammar. Grammar, of course, grammar refers to the rules of a language uh, that govern the way in which uh, communication takes place and people understand each other. A grammar is uh, a particular book trying to explain those rules. So we we tend to use uh, grammarians will tend and grammarians and I'd say book collectors tend to use uh, the word grammar as a count noun, two grammars, three grammars, meaning books on grammar. We we're about to find out there is indeed a long history of books on grammar. Yes. Well, in fact, the 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 end of the title about the heyday of English grammar, uh, it's really extraordinary how competitive it was back in the 18th century and the 19th century with so many different schoolmasters uh, writing grammars to try to establish preeminence. But in a way, this was before the rise of the um, of the railroad and shipping books was very expensive. So almost every town, hamlet, city had uh, local schoolmasters producing grammar books for their own schools. And many of the ones that I've collected, certainly from the 1700s, fall into that category. And perhaps it was for that reason that uh, a certain degree of plagiarism was pretty well accepted. And as railroads became uh, more and more established, um, plagiarism became very much uh, disfavored. There were people, in fact, the, the, the father of modern copyright is Noah Webster, better known, by the way, as a lexicographer, a dictionary writer. But Noah Webster is also known as the father of American copyright law because he was upset that others were plagiarizing his grammar books. So uh, you've been collecting grammars since you were 19. How did it all start? What inspired your interest in, in, in grammar generally and these type of books? Well, you know, in, in a way, I trace my uh, really obsessive interest in language to a comment that a girl made to me when I was 15 years old. She said, and I liked her very much. Uh, she said, you know, Brian, you have a really big vocabulary. 
And that little comment changed my life because I decided, uh, well, that, that, that impresses her. It took me several years to realize this actually, uh, having a big vocabulary does not really work on the opposite sex at all in itself. But in any event, I became obsessed with building an even bigger vocabulary. And I copied out from dictionaries beginning about age 15, um, 30 words a day minimum. And they were hard words, but they were what I considered to be useful words, not obsolete words, not made up words, but interesting, useful words that had been recorded in major dictionaries. I still have this vocabulary notebook that I think it's a couple of thousand pages long in my own hand. Uh, and I had a larger vocabulary, I think, when I was 18 than I do today, even though I'm I'm also a lexicographer, not just a grammarian. That's the best collecting story I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> what, what was your reply to the girl who said? Well, at the time, I was just, I think I just blushed and said, thank you. You know, I never, I never called her on the telephone. I never did anything but try to build an even bigger vocabulary, thinking this would be impressive, I suppose. Um, I just, last year, had my 61st birthday and invited a lot of my friends from grade school, junior high school, high school to my party. So I grew up in the panhandle of Texas in a little college town called Canyon. And this was a Canyon themed party where, uh, and I did invite her. In fact, she said, Brian, you know, she was impressed by the library. And I said, well, you know, it's all sort of uh, attributable to you. And she said, what do you mean? And I, and I told her about this comment, of which she had no recollection at all. But she said she was very, um, you know, happy about this and said, won't you please tell, the, tell everybody here, tell everyone. And uh, uh, so everybody at the party seemed to like the story as well. But, it, it was, you know, everything is traceable to that sort of instinct, impressing the, the, uh, the kind of person you're attracted to. Was your wife okay? Oh, she, she was she was just fine. That she knows the story. She's heard it many times. Because what, the way I usually tell the story is, uh, I soon fell in love with language and forgot about the girl. It's not quite true. We we stayed friends, but uh, yeah, I mean, I fell in love with language, and I I really do believe if you fall in love with language, it will always love you back. Wonderful. All right, the exhibition. Let's talk about that. Um, so, six thousand books to choose from. How did you select just one hundred for the Grolier exhibition? What was your criteria? Well, a lot of my books are rather common books and twentieth-century books. What I wanted to do was show this formative era, in which uh, there was a great deal of back and forth sniping between the grammarians great deal of competition and English grammars were just coming into the in, into the fore. I mean, up to that time, up to the early 1700s, almost all schooling of children was done in Latin. Formal, formal grammar was taught was Latin grammar. So boys learned Latin grammar and girls learned French grammar. And a lot of the earliest English grammars from this period were you know, modeled on uh, Latinate grammar. 
And it wasn't until Joseph Priestley, the scientist, uh, wrote his grammar in 1761 and revised it substantially in 1768, the man who discovered oxygen, which he called deflagisticated air. But Joseph Priestley uh, bristled at the fact that English grammars were based on Latin, the way people were writing them, when in fact the English language is a Germanic language. It's not, an, it's, it, it's not a, a, a romance language. And the grammar is very independent from uh, and not really too akin to Latin grammar. So there was this long struggle, really over 150 years, as grammarians tried to break free from the fetters of Latin grammar. It took quite a long, long time. But choosing the books, I mean, it was just a matter of choosing the choicest, rarest specimens, the ones that, that, that a serious book collector would most prize, the ones that are hardest to find and probably the most valuable. Now, in the 100 books, the, the name of Noah Webster crops up again and again. And as you've already briefly mentioned, um, he is an important figure. Can you tell us a bit more about him, about why he was so fundamental in, in, in grammar, but other areas too? Well, uh, there are a couple of biographical revelations about uh, Noah Webster that, that, that come out in Taming the Tongue, in the book, the, the catalog that accompanies uh, the exhibition. And the funny thing is that Noah Webster, when he first was writing about grammar, 1783-1784, he was strongly accused of plagiarism. And uh, there, was, there were these writers writing anonymously. The anonymous name was Dilworth's Ghost, and Dilworth had been an earlier grammarian from about 50 or 60 years before. Um, and so Webster, this I think this really rankled Webster, the idea that he had, you know, engaged in literary theft. And so the funny thing is that just, you know, two decades later, he becomes the big accuser of the most successful grammarian of the age, and that was Lindley Murray. Both Lindley Murray and Noah Webster were American lawyers. Lindley Murray was a New York lawyer, very successful lawyer, who retired to in 1784 to York, England. So born in Pennsylvania, moves to England, uh, retires, and becomes an invalid. Um, and in 1795, he publishes his English grammar, in which, uh, and, and the, the success of that grammar made Noah Webster furious. Now, a little more about Webster. Webster, also a lawyer, younger than Lindley Murray, um, at first tried to practice law, then he tried to become a schoolmaster. He was unsuccessful at both, and he wrote a speller first and then a, a grammar. So he considered his grammatical institute to be three things, the speller, how to spell words, and he sort of reformed American spelling to a great degree. And he, Noah Webster actually accounts for most of the differences between American English and British English, you know, center, R-E versus E-R, labor, O-U-R versus O-R, and that sort of thing. That's, that's largely traceable to Noah Webster.
But Webster, having not succeeded at law practice and not succeeded in establishing a school, did succeed in uh, writing books, but his grammar was never as successful as his speller. And ultimately, the great success of Lindley Murray, when he was eclipsed uh, in grammar, Webster tried to recall all of his grammar books uh, and, and write a new one, but he essentially shifted his focus to dictionaries when he realized he could not best Lindley Murray, the best-selling author of the first half of the 19th century. He sold something like 15.5 million literacy books. So the English but, spelling of theater and the American spelling of theater is purely down to Noah. It, it is, yes. Now, here's an interesting thing that I found. Uh, one of my discoveries in the last decade has been a deed uh, for the sale of land a piece of land owned by Lindley Murray in New York City and sold to none other than Noah Webster. It is signed by Murray's brother, John, who's living in New York and signed by, by Webster. Um, I think what, and then seven months later, uh, Lindley Murray's grammar comes out. I suspect this can't be proved, but I suspect that what happened is uh, John Murray told his brother Lindley by mail, um, and there were a lot of letters going back and forth, uh, but this one doesn't survive, that his land was being sold to a grammarian named Noah Webster. Now, Lindley Murray had probably heard of, of uh, Noah Webster because Webster was getting to be pretty well known even before Murray left America and went to England. But I think I think that's kind of where he got the idea. By golly, I think I'll write an English grammar. I've been meaning to do that. And he did. And then, you know, he bested uh, Noah Webster. Webster then breached his contract with Lindley Murray um, in 1797 to 1798. And, um, and the two really didn't get along. But the main reason they didn't get along is that Lindley Murray became known as the father of English grammar and the most successful grammarian, really, in the history of the English language. But it sounds like a tangled web. Um, it seems that you're not just interested in the content of these books, but the stories behind the people who wrote them as well. Is that true? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, there aren't that many lexicographers and grammarians in a given age. So my library, um, my main library is uh, about 2,500 square feet. I have uh, in that particular, I have three libraries, um, but that one has 17,000 volumes in it and images of Lindley Murray, Noah Webster, busts of Lindley Murray, Noah Webster, Samuel Johnson. And when I'm working on my own dictionaries and grammar books, um, you know, I'm I'm sort of I feel as if I'm in their midst. I don't admire Noah Webster as a person that much because he was a mean. He was just the opposite of Lindley Murray. Lindley Murray was a serene, uh, a rather pious man. I don't 
I mean, I, I guess uh, I'm not a religious person, but I can't help admiring uh, Murray's character. He was very pious and uh, very upright, uh, always tried to do the right thing. All of this is very admirable. Uh, Noah Webster was rather accusatory, mean-spirited, um, completely full of himself, um, greatly, you know, self-aggrandizing, self-promoting. Um, so in, in the war between Lindley Murray and Noah Webster, I'm very much on, on Murray's side, but I do collect, um, I collect original documents, letters by them both, uh, things in their own hand. I just yesterday received a a small scrap of uh, an original manuscript uh, of Noah Webster's Dictionary of 1828, and I love I love getting this stuff, even though, as I say, I don't admire Webster as a person much. Now you say uh, between 1711 and 1851, you say that the sales of books about grammar was second only to those of the Bible, which seems an amazing fact. Why was there such demand for them during this, this period? Well, I think there was a great deal of linguistic insecurity. And, um, you know, to some extent that exists in all ages, but much probably much, much less so today than ever before. Today it's sort of, uh, well, I say it this way, and I'm happy with the way I say it. But that was not true um, in the in the era that we're talking about, a great deal of linguistic insecurity about wanting to sound educated, wanting to sound literate. And it was thought that you couldn't really speak or write well without knowing the part of speech of every word that you use in every sentence. And it was just so well ingrained that almost everybody believed that. But every, uh, every school child had to own a grammar and a lot of them weren't built for durability. So the, the, the Noah Webster grammars, it's very unusual to find them in original covers with the, the leather still intact. A lot of them uh, simply did not survive. But every household had to have uh, a grammar book and, and probably more grammars than dictionaries sold. But, you know, Samuel Johnson sold a lot of dictionaries and included a grammar in his dictionary. Like an essential tool, really, for learning. That's right. Um, and English grammar was supplanting Latin grammar in both English and American schools. Uh, Latin was, you know, falling into gradual disuse, although in the more, in, in the posh schools, uh, in the so-called public schools of England, um, Latin grammar persisted well into the uh, late 19th century. But people were learning uh, English grammar, you know, at all levels. And many of the books tried to cover English and Latin grammar, um, you know, in the same text. And that was kind of interesting. There was a man named, a Scotsman named Alexander Adam. and I, you're, you're right. I do love learning about the stories of these grammarians because many of them were so 
interesting, a few of them quite outlandish people. Uh, but Alexander Adam was a, a beloved schoolmaster in Edinburgh. And his, on his deathbed, and he wrote this, Eng, uh, this uh, grammar that treated both English and Latin. But on his deathbed, his final words recorded, uh, and I found this in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, were to an imaginary class of schoolboys. And he said to this imaginary class, but it grows dark, boys, and we must leave the rest until tomorrow. And then he died. Now your list. Uh, I, I noted with, with interest that there was uh, a couple of female writers on on the list. And the first one I saw was Elizabeth Elstob, who wrote a book on grammar in 1715, The Rudiments of Grammar for the English Saxon Tongue. Um, so I was thinking at that time, just as a woman, she must have overcome all sorts of hurdles just to get published. Well, she did. I mean, and her biggest hurdle was breaking free from her uncle, who was uh, prebendary at Canterbury Cathedral. And he, uh, so her parents died when she was young. Her mother died when she was nine. And she was raised by her uncle, who, who was against uh, female education. And he so he put obstacles in her way. She overcame extraordinary obstacles. But her brother had become a fellow at University College, Oxford, and she soon joined her brother um, in Oxford and, and started studying Old English or Anglo-Saxon with the Oxford Saxonists. And in 1708, she uh, wrote her first book. She came out with another one. Um, the next year, and and her her last book was this 1715 uh, grammar. Now it was actually it's called an English Saxon grammar, but it it was a grammar of Old English. Hers was the first grammar book ever for Old English. So it was an extraordinary intellectual achievement. She then lived for another 41 years. Uh, and never wrote another book, or as far as we know, I don't think she wrote, even wrote an article. Um, so her last book came out in 1715 when she was, uh, gee, only in her early 30s. But she lived much longer and became a, a governess in a household uh, in England. Quite a story. And she's also the first grammarian for whom we have a likeness. We, we, we know what she looked like because her portrait was printed in the book. But I, I love the story of Elizabeth Elstob. And she was her her sparkling intellect was so much to the fore that in the preface to the book, she's actually deriding Jonathan Swift, who wanted to, to found an English academy. And she makes very telling arguments, very lawyerly arguments against Jonathan Swift. So somewhat of a pioneer then and probably very strong willed. <laughs> I, I imagine so, yes. <laughs> yeah. So there was a, another female author on the list, uh, Anne Fisher, and there's a book she produced called Why is Practical New Grammar with Exercises of Bad English from 1745? That book, why is that a controversial book? Well, uh, 
she's the first ever to announce the the rule that held sway for a very long time and some people think still think it is uh, a good rule that the masculine includes the feminine now that's not a rule that i uh, that i promote because i like gender neutral writing but so if you say everyone can think for himself that includes all women uh that was her rule and uh it's interesting that a female grammarian um is the one who who laid it down but uh she's another extraordinary woman she was married to a a printer named thomas slack in newcastle had nine children and still was writing uh various books including one called fisher's pleasing instructor um in the 18th century so i recently acquired a, a copy of fisher's pleasing instructor with her autograph in it delighted to have that so this book from 1745 is actually extremely topical today with how people ask for themselves to be described or how gender is referred to in text Would it is it is indeed yes but um, the 1745 first edition um, is not, it's, it, it's only thought to be, uh, to, to, to exist. Uh, that is, no modern bibliographer has been able to locate that 1745 uh, book, even though that was the, the, there was a first edition thought to have been published in that year. The earliest known edition is the second of 1750. I know this is, this is probably, you know, uh, boring to people, but when you have something that is so fundamental, when was this first this rule first announced? We don't actually know whether it first appeared in 1750 in the second edition or this unknown 1745 edition. So, if any of you listeners out there have the 1745 Practical New Grammar by Ann Fisher, please come forward. So that would be. A very exciting find for you then. Oh, for a whole host of uh, people. Yes, it would be exciting. All right. Okay, another name I saw on the list was John Baskerville. Um, so that name was familiar to me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him? So he was famous to me because I recognized his name from fonts and typefaces, yeah. um, which was one of his jobs. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Well, he he was a great typesetter and developer of uh, typography in the Baskerville family of fonts. He lived in Birmingham. He he was uh, sort of looked down on by the London printers of the time. But Baskerville was a, a friend of Benjamin Franklin's and um, they corresponded quite a bit. I think Franklin even visited him in Birmingham. But uh, Baskerville was thought to be um, a man of great taste and cultivation. And uh, one, one of his uh, eulogies said that whatever passed through his fingers bore the lively marks of John Baskerville. He also, by the way, had a section of his book devoted to uh, the usual mistakes in English grammar. And so, in a way, he was a precursor to the modern dictionaries of usage, um, dealing with, you know, what is 
what is effective idiom or acceptable idiom and what is not acceptable or educated usage. So I was going to ask, um, what do people say to you at dinner parties? Do people say that, um, what do you say to people who say to you that grammar is boring? But I have a feeling, Brian, that um, no one actually says that to you because you are so passionate about grammar. Uh, nobody says that much to me. What I commonly hear is, oh, I have to be careful in my speech, in my speech uh, with you. And it's a funny thing. One of my good friends is uh, Judith Martin in Washington, D.C. She is better known as Miss Manners. And she and I have frequently commented that what we commonly hear people say, people will hear that they're, you know, having dinner with Miss Manners. Oh, oh I better behave myself, you know, and or people are going to be talking to me. They they profess uh, to be very self-conscious about how they're speaking. But, um, you know, there's no need. <laughs> there's no need. Of course, I, I, I hear things probably that most people don't. And I, I, I pick up on things. And, and but the, up to a professional, uh, there's no such thing as a linguistic pet peeve. I mean, uh, somebody who's professionally interested in these kinds of things. And I've written some very long books about English grammar and, and uh, English usage uh, for Oxford University Press. Um, I consider these data points, uh, interesting points. You know, Rachel Maddow says pled instead of pleaded. This bothers my father no end. My 90-year-old father is constantly... Uh, he records every grammatical error he hears on the on the television and, and, and sends me a compilation each night. Uh, but it, it always has some Maddo instances of pled as opposed to pleaded. And uh, to me, I, mean, I don't get upset about these things. I'm interested in them. I'm interested in how language changes and how standards are established and that sort of thing. And that's what I write about. So language changes, but does grammar change is grammar fixed or is it a movable feast um nothing's fixed grammar changes sure uh, for example what hw fowler called the fused participle i appreciate your coming today or i appreciate you coming today now fowler op opposed the so-called fused participle of uh, you coming he would say, I appreciate your coming, or I resent your saying that, or I resent you saying that. Um, you're not resenting the person, you're resenting the statement. So um, grammarians have long insisted that it should be, I resent your saying that, not you saying that. And by the way, I'm, I'm not complaining about anything you've just said, Richard. You understand this is just an example. Of course. In any event, um, so... The, the grammatical relations of words and sentences, what is considered uh, standard, will change over time. And that that's happened again and again in the history of the English language. The, some things are very, you know, uh, very stable. For They were. We don't say they was. Well, they was uh, does occur in dialect, dialectal speech or non-standard speech, but uh, a plural uh, subject with a plural 
verb. But uh, you said earlier, just to prove my point, I hope this doesn't make you feel self-conscious, Richard, but you said, what was your criteria as opposed to what were your criteria? So the question is, is criteria, so is criterion the singular, which traditionally it was? Single plural. That's right. But increasingly, people say, my criteria is. So is criteria becoming a singular uh, noun? It's an interesting point. So you gave me an, an additional piece of data. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's uh, as an English person living in North America, I feel I'm caught between two stools um, that I, I see both sides of grammar. So, and I regularly have to work in text for aid books, right, with our communications and all sorts of things. So like the criteria question comes up, but even like in simple language, for me as an English person, I protest against something, whereas here they yeah. protest. Yeah. They never use the word against. And there's so many examples where I stop myself or I rephrase what I'm saying because I'm because because my audience is different. So sometimes it depends on the audience. It does. And there are these subtle differences between American English and British English. Uh, one another something similar to using protest as a transitive verb or the direct object. We protested that action versus we protected protested against the action, which would be British English. Stop. If you say you want to stop somebody from doing something, that would be American English. But in British English, it's common to say to stop somebody doing something. That's very unusual to American ears. And one thing that's, I think, interesting in the history of grammar, uh, and it, it, it happens as a matter of frozen culture, um, you often find that expats are whether they are uh, immigrants from China. My parents-in-law were immigrants from from China, and in a way, uh, so if you if you let's say come to America in the 1970s, uh, you perpetuate uh, Chinese culture as it existed in the 1970s, or it doesn't matter whether it's Africa, Vietnam, or any. Any expat going from one country to another country, there tends to be something called frozen culture. And that happened linguistically in America, that, uh, that where, whereas British English continued evolving rather a little more rapidly than American English in some ways, in, in, only in some ways, uh, Americans tended to be much more rigid and stalwart about wanting the older British forms and uh, gotten instead of got and as a past participle and things of that kind. Uh, also, Americans tended have tended over time to be sticklers for grammar to a greater degree than um, the British. And I think that's partly because of a kind of linguistic insecurity. We want to be sure that we get it right and we stick to the the form that existed when um, America won its independence. In a way, we have frozen culture. Now, I don't mean to overstate that, but it's a definite trend. I can never say gotten. I just can't do it. 
just can't do it. It's but then I had I had a middle school English teacher uh, who said never in writing use get or got because there's always going to be a better word to use than those two. So gotten is just a continuation. But I do want to say a word in defense of the word get. Uh, there is a widespread prejudice that your junior high school teacher was, uh, you know, show, demonstrating against the word get. Now, sometimes there's a better word, but uh, uh, often, um, you know, how do you get paid? Um, wh- whatever the idiom may be, there are hundreds of idioms in which get is just the word. So uh, this this prejudice against uh, get is, I think, misplaced. She was a very, firm, was a very <laughs> firm English teacher. She said the same rule about nice. Never use the word nice. There's always a better word. But um, she has a point was, there. Oh, nice is so <laughs> it's so overused, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Wow, we could go on go on about this for a long time. Uh, either way, final question, Brian. But what book or books are you currently reading? Oh my goodness. My goodness, I just went to press yesterday with my newest dictionary. It's Black's Law Dictionary, Pocket Edition. So I have to say I've been a little bit out of pocket uh, in reading galleys uh, for the last couple of weeks. What am I reading? What Uh, will you read? What will you read? I have a whole stack of books that have just uh, arrived in the front table. Um, I'm reading a biography of Thomas Paine is that actually at the top of the list. Um, I'm interested in Thomas Paine because one of the grammarians in Taming the Tongue, uh, William Cobbett, um, who was quite a prolific and sort of flamboyant and even incendiary journalist, British journalist, stole uh, Thomas Paine's bones. He dug up his grave and took his bones back to England. And Thomas Paine, of course, was uh, an Enlightenment figure. Uh, okay. Uh, all right, Brian. Um, that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Brian Gardner for joining us. I would say it's been a nice interview. Um, uh, but we're not going to say nice, that. It's nice to get interviewed by you, but I think there's a better <laughs> way to say it. You're a wonderful interviewer and uh, uh Thank you so much for your time today. And you're one of the best guests that I've gotten on the show. <laughs> you're very kind. Thank you. Not to uh, be nice. <laughs> 100 books from Brian's collection of grammar books and dictionaries are on display at the Grolier Club in New York. The exhibition is called Taming the Tongue in the Heyday of English Grammar. It runs until May the 15th. The Grolier's exhibitions are open to visitors, but you need an appointment. Uh, visit the Grolier Club's website for more details, and that's groliaclub.org. groliaclub.org. Thanks for listening. My name's Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Ape Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.